Have you ever had to ask uh, your family uh, for help? Uh, we have, um, Danette and I have many times. I feel like my family and Danette's family, um, for them, helping us has been a big part of their life. Um, in college, my grandma, she started sending me traveler's checks. Do any of you know what a traveler's check is? College students, you know what a traveler's check is? Jaden, you know what a traveler's check is? So I got $25 of traveler's checks in the mail every week from my grandma. And it helped me um, as I went through college. Later, that same grandma um, bought me a 1991 Geo Metro. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like, uh, it was like close to brand new. Like, I actually got it in the year. It had been pre-owned, but... Um, I got this Geo Metro, $3,000, brand new car, pretty much brand new. It would get 55 miles to the gallon, three cylinders. When I sat in it, it kind of sat one way. It got me back and forth, though, from New Mexico State, the Yale of the Yuccas, time and time again. Um, in fact, when I met Danette, that was the car I was driving, now, she was driving a, a Nissan 240SX, and so whenever we went out on a date, we took her car and not the Metro. My parents have given me cars at various times in my life. I'm driving one right now out in that back par parking lot. It's called Betty. Betty White, because it's a white car. I don't know. Danette's grandpa helped us buy a trailer house. Danette's grandma helped us one time pay our taxes. My dad has bailed me out time and time again when I've had problems with houses or trouble with cars. Where has a family member delivered you when you were in a tight situation, a jam? Now, what if you were in a, a, a tight situation and you didn't have any family? What if you needed help, a bailout? You've accumulated a debt, a debt that is too great for you to pay. Where might you go to find aid, help, release? Would you phone a friend? Would you seek aid elsewhere? Now, I think for many of us, shame enters the picture in this place. We, we don't seek aid in these situations because seeking aid would mean exposure. It might expose you and I to our bad decisions, our risky choices. It might expose someone else to our poverty. It might expose us to the realities and someone else to the realities of being in a world like our world, a world where there are injustices and sinful choices. And those things come with a built-in matrix of shame and embarrassment. Even when you didn't do anything to deserve your plight, it was an act of God or an act of violence or some other injustice to be placed in that situation of neediness comes locked and loaded with shame. So to be in this place at all is exposure. It's vulnerability. It's need. So friends, what wins out when you're in those kind of places? Do you 
pull up your bootstraps and figure it out because you can't be put into a debt towards your family or a neighbor because those bootstraps cover you from your exposure. They cocoon you. They protect you from risk. Or do you cry out? Do you cry out to God, family, neighbor, friend, even stranger for help, for redemption? Redemption is that word, by the way, that we use for buying back. Its nature is economic. Like, I had two rewards at Chick-fil-A this week. There was a deadline for those rewards to be used. They needed to be redeemed. So I and the family went to Chick-fil-A. I paid for the whole meal with those two rewards and points. Chick-fil-A redemption. It's also a word that we use for rescue. To be redeemed is to be rescued, to receive some sort of help that redeems you or your situation. It's also some, uh, someone buys back their reputation, right? Like just when you thought you were, they were totally a jerk, they go and totally redeem themselves. Is there a place where you sit this morning where redemption would be the word that comes to mind that what you need. Like, you need help. Your life has found places of trouble. You have places of need. You need redemption. It might be financial. And then again, it might be something more. You need the redemption of a relationship because you have been the jerk or they have been the jerk. You need redemption because your life has been sitting on this dangerous precipice and the ground below you has started to give way. Your your marriage is broken. Your relationship with your child has given way. Like this week on a listserv that I'm a part of, one of the pastors shared about his wayward children. And it was like the floodgates opened. Pastor upon pastor upon pastor suffered exposure and shared about relationships they had with sons or daughters that needed redemption. And what struck me, as one of the pastors talked about in part, is how hard that is because as pastor, everyone is looking, he says, at me, or at least it feels this way, wondering what I did to mess this thing up. Now, Charles Spurgeon says about this passage today, the widow's husband, a prophet, had been among the persecuted, and having been by oppression deprived of all that he had, it came to pass when he died, he left his wife and children in distress. From which I gather, Spurgeon says, that holy men may be in the worst of circumstances, And yet, it will be no proof that the Lord has forsaken them. Maybe you feel this way too. And to ask for redemption or help in this place would mean exposure. Or maybe your kids are younger and you feel the same thing. Like, you need redemption because you are or have been harsh But to throw that out there places you amidst a gambit of a more exposing kind of question. 
or maybe it's your age. You need help, but, to, but this reminds you of something in your age. You feel like you should be past this, or you wish you still had the strength, or think you still do have the strength, but your wife and your kids keep telling you that you don't. Or maybe it's more spiritual in nature this morning. The demons have run amok in your head and heart. You are hemmed in, trapped. And there's all sorts of ways your, your boundedness is eking out of your spiritual pores. You can't stop that sin anymore. You can't stop numbing yourself to your sadness, your pain, your boredom. You long for redemption, but at this point, it feels like a pipe dream. You would rather return to the mess again and again and again than to hope that there might be help. Redemption. Redemption from our histories and systems and sin and the devil, how we need it, long for it, hope it might still come. In our text this morning, redemption is what is needed. And ultimately, it's what's given. The wife of one of the sons of the prophets cries out. Now, just to recap, remember last week, there are prophets The good news of last week's text, at least in part, is there are prophets, not just one lone prophet, because Elijah's been taken up in the whirlwind. So what's going to happen now to Israel if Elijah, the prophet, the lone prophet, is gone? And we discover quickly there are prophets, and not just one prophet, Elijah, to take Elijah's place. There's many prophets, sons, they say, of the father prophet Elijah. And one of these prophets dies, and his wife does what? Cries out to Elijah. She cries. She is in this place in need of help, rescue, redemption. And in this place, she has nowhere else to turn, so she does what? She cries out. And that's the starting point for all of us this morning. It's really the starting point and the finish point. When you're in need of redemption, cry out. When you're in need of rescue, cry out. She cries out. She goes to the one whom she thinks will provide, Elisha. Her husband's died. The, The creditors have come to take her two children away to be enslaved. This is what was known as debtor's prison or debt servitude, a regular practice in the ancient world, but not just the ancient world. Even now in our world, debtor's prison is a regularity. In the Bible, you could buy back your debt and pay it off. It could be redeemed by working it off yourself or you could give your offspring to the task to redeem the debt. Now, just a note, Elisha's ministry for most of his calling takes place in Israel proper. The writer of Kings wants you to know that he is among the people of God. So what does that mean? Well, it should mean that there was a mechanism among God's people for making restitution of any debts. Yahweh is the protector of orphans and widows. 
he calls Israel to do the same. So in Exodus 22:22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Make no mistake. God is a protector of the orphan and the widow. Deuteronomy 10, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, giving them food and clothing. James chapter 1, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. The call was not to leave a widow and her children vulnerable. To not allow them to be exposed to unjust, unjust bankers or hucksters, or scammers. In fact, the law provides guidance for the relief of the debt. All debts were to be canceled in the Sabbath year, the seventh year. There is a Sabbath rest to a debt. All the kings of Israel and all their underlings are required to protect orphan and widows from such oppression by protecting that Sabbath year. And the lasting effect of Ahab And all his dynasty is evident right here in this text. The people, the kings, have rejected God's law that exists for God's people. The widow of the sons of the prophet is being oppressed, and she can't turn to the king's court for justice. The widow has pursued legitimate legal means, but her creditors are acting unjustly. So where does she turn? That's a valid question for us this morning, City Press. In a world where there are so very many like this woman, so very many left in a squalor because there is no one to redeem or rescue them. The courts provide no defense, and neither does anyone else. Where will she turn? Now, we sit here this morning, and the hope is she will look for the church, but the reality is she isn't. And that, at some level, should cut us to the quick as God's people. The sign of this text is the people have forgotten the Lord, his ways, and his calling. Now, this wasn't just true in this day. It was true in the day of Jesus, right? The religious leaders of that day were told in Matthew 23, devour the house of the widow. The religious people of that day devour the house of the widow. Their livelihood and life has been deprived in order to ensure what? Their own profits. And the leaders either are full-on involved in such unjust affairs, or they wink at the oppression of these widows and orphans and turn the other way. Peter Lightheart says, death and a culture of death stalks the land. I don't think truer words could be spoken about our culture, friends. 
So what does the widow do? She cries out. Do we, when we are in such places of trouble, cry out? I mean, maybe you are feeling deep distress right now over your financial situation and future. Let this be an encouragement to you. You are not alone. You are where the prophets and saints have been. It's too easy for us, City Press, to bear this as a curse, a scarlet letter, instead of a reality of the world in which we live, both sin within and sin without. And perhaps in this place, we are more keenly aware of our deep need of God and our deep need for others to step into our life and bring redemption. And conversely, do we hear, City Press, the cries of the widow and the orphan when they are in trouble? Because Yahweh does. He knows exactly where this widow of his prophet is. He knows where you are, and he knows what you need. And Elijah, as an extension of Yahweh, just as the church is to be an extension of God, to, uh, steps in, hears the cry of the widow, and cares for her. Elijah hears and responds. Like his master, Elijah hears the widow of Israel, the son of the prophets, in her cry of desperation. And what does he tell her? What shall I do for you? Tell me. And then he doesn't even give her a chance to answer, by the way. There is something here, I think. I mean, we're good individualists and Americans. We are made aware of something and we offer What can I do? How can I help? Tell me. When sometimes what is needed is the question, what do you have in your house? What's needed is presence and help given more than just offered, right? Like, we're we're, we're really ready to step in and say, hey, how can I help you when someone's in trouble? And what's needed in that moment is more than just the question. It's the need to actually step in and Help. The widow responds, I have nothing but a jar of oil. I have nothing but. There's something here, I think. So many times we think we have nothing. And maybe this is the first opportunity to take stock of our nothingness. When it feels like there's nothing, taking stock of that nothingness can bring us face to face with our shame. Right? You're immediately thrust back into this place where Oh yeah, I don't. I I really I really do have nothing. Elisha invites the widow into that space, and maybe that is what's needed because you feel depleted. You feel used up when you are in places of deep grief. When you are torn up by the pain of your choices, taking stock can feel overwhelming. We avoid it and postpone it. We we don't like to feel our scarcity. But in this place of nothing, this place of loss, Elijah still steps in with a question, and that question is actually empowering. And this, this gets at something, just to note our places of being with others. Daniel Gedemi, who used to be here, uh, one of our elders, he, he used to say this over and over, but when someone comes with great need into our lives, there is this thinking they have nothing, and we need to step in and save and rescue them right away. But instead, there's often things that people have, resources that they don't know or think about. And so inviting them to take stock of their nothing draws this out, and it's dignifying and empowering. Now, I want to be easy on this line because 
God doesn't necessarily call us and then ask us to find resources to redeem ourselves. This is a very easy trap we often think about God. The the mantra, God helps those who help themselves, bumps into this. But there is a taking stock that is helpful in the process of redemption. Taking stock with how I got here, with the story we've been living into, the story we've been given, right? We talked about this last week. There's a thrownness in our histories. There is a taking stock of our nothingness that does open us up to help. And sometimes it opens us up to the things that we think are nothing and are actually something in the economy of God. I mean, I don't know how many times God has used something from my story and history to be a means of either bringing me to the reality of my need for Jesus and his grace or how often he's used it in the life of another to do the same. The widow takes stock, and what does she discover? I have oil. Now, there's certainly some things we can take from that. Oil represents life, represents life in the spirit of God. Oil is a way to cook. It's a way to light a fire. It's a way to create light. Elijah responds, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, but not too few. In other words, he says, go get a lot of, a lot of jars, like a lot, a lot. Elijah's plan of redemption involves the woman's community, a community that may or may not uh, be failing her and not offering the help she needs because of her debt. Or maybe a community that is asking, how can I help? And the widow, perhaps, has no idea how to even ask for it. Now, in the aftermath of her husband's death, that's probably real. Elijah gives her a tangible thing to ask for. Now, could he have just enabled her redemption to come from one jar, the one jar she owned? Yes. Just like Elijah, he could have, but he doesn't. He calls her to interdependence. Community is a gift. And the provision that she receives comes from that community in all sorts of ways. Her community is apparently very glad to help because we're told in verse 6 that the vessels are abundant. There are many. Now, this is crucial for us, City Press. In our nothingness, just our oil, there is something multiplied by our community. Meals for mamas who have their babies means moms and dads can focus their attention on their baby and not their needs for meals. Helping each other means that the movee, to move, helping somebody move, means the movee can focus on getting things ready at old house and new. Prayers by the saints means that in the poverty of our spirit, others can take us up and give us a means by supernatural help and aid, sometimes believing for us where we can't even believe. The empty jars of our lives filled with the oil of their life. Elisha reminds the widow that she's not alone in her loss and nothingness. There is oil and there is neighbors with jars. So will we be a people who ask for jars and will we be a people who give them? Notice there is this relationship in our interdependence. There is an asking and a giving. The blessing of those who ask and those who give. Sometimes we need to ask and sometimes we need to give. Often, it's easier for us in this church to just be givers, and it's harder to be askers. But sometimes, you only have the oil, and sometimes you only have the empty jars. 
And maybe this is one of the gifts of these last several years for all of us, confronting us with our frailty and our neediness. And maybe as we embark on the new year, inching along into February, this continues to be the question, what do I do with my nothingness? I feel empty. I feel tired. Like how many of you are weary and overwrought with illness and the reminder that you need oil and you need filling? Elijah shows the widow that God intends to do what? Fill empty vessels with the oil of his spirit and his presence. Friends, God fills empty vessels. Now, he tells her, get inside, shut the door behind yourself and your sons. Pour your oil into all these vessels and when one is full, set it aside. And so she does. She goes in. She shuts the door behind her and her young boys. She fills one empty vessel with oil and then another 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 and then another. And And the oil still keeps flowing for her and another and another. And I wonder sometimes, like, maybe I try to stuff my life with so much stuff and things and more stuff and things and more distraction and more activity so I don't feel so empty, so my nothingness isn't quite so acute. Like, I feel ashamed that I am so, so empty and so quick to satisfy it with this urge or that urge that I don't really know how empty I am, but it is the empty vessel that God intends to fill. In Ephesians, Paul says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The implication is that a life drunk with the pleasures of wine leaves no emptiness for the pleasures of the Spirit to fill. And there's a faith component to that. Like, will my emptiness be filled by God and His Spirit? But if God fills the emptiness, it is what he does. The Spirit hovers over the void, we're told in Genesis. The Spirit hovers over our voids, eager to fill it. Will we trust God with our nothingness and our emptiness with the little oil in our neighbor's jar? The boys keep bringing jar after jar after jar, and the Lord keeps filling jar after jar after jar. And finally, the widow fills the last jar, and she asks her son, bring me another. And the boy says, there's no more. And then the oil stops flowing. She came and told Elijah, he says, now go, sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Not only is there enough to pay her debts, there is more than enough that she can live on the rest. I mean, I love this. The man of God here acts as the widow's kinsman redeemer. That word, kinsman redeemer, is talked about in Leviticus 25. It comes right after the section of Jubilee, the 50-year sabbatical rest offered to God's people to be free of all their debts, to have their lands restored to them that have been taken away to pay for those debts, to be released from any kind of captivity that you might find yourself in. It comes after the provision in the law for kindness to be shown to one who is in, uh, in the family of God's people when they become poor or a stranger or a refugee who finds their way living among you. And then the section of the, on the Kims and Redeemer, a, a brother has been sold to pay a debt. 
So his brother or uncle or close relative from his clan can come and redeem him to buy him back. And if there's no one that can do this, then in the year of Jubilee, he will be freed from his debts. There's so much beauty here among the ruins of debt and poverty and need. Elijah here fulfills this for the widow. The miraculous act of filling the empty jars with precious and costly oil, Elijah becomes her heir, her brother, and redeems her. Elijah announces in action that he's come to proclaim two captives to announce the favorable year of Yahweh, to bring jubilee freedom and life into this place of death being enacted by the kings of Israel. And for the first hearers of this, remember, these first hearers sit in exile. They have no place, no land. They've been alienated. They've been marched away as refugees. And this story of Elisha proclaims that as you sit in Babylon, there is life to be found. Redemption from your slavery, restoration to come to the promised land, the gift of children and life. To who? All who stay close, who cry out to God and his prophets. Elisha is a a type of incarnation of Yahweh. He comes animated by his spirit, foreshadowing that he will come near to exilic Israel and buy her back from her slavery in Babylon. And to you and me, to us, we who live on the backside, not only of Elisha, but Christ, Elijah calls us to remember that Jesus too has come to you to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favor, that he's come near to you to be your kinsman redeemer. For we too, like this widow, had a debt that we could not pay. We take stock of our nothingness, and if the Spirit doesn't come and supply life to us and fill our empty vessels, then we remain dead in our trespasses and sins. And we too are racked with shame that to ask brings us on the brink of exposure. We are in debt, ashamed. We cannot pay it. In Psalm 49, 7 and 8, we read, Truly no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. In 49.15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of death. He will receive me. If we are going to be bought back, redeemed from our great debt, then it will require something supernatural. Just like this woman. It will require God to act for us. And God provides. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, You were bought with a price. He goes on in Colossians 1, Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness, transformed us to the kingdom of his Son. In him we have redemption. Peter echoes this in 1 Peter when he says that we were ransomed not with silver and gold, we were bought back with what? The precious blood of Jesus. Friends, you and I have a debt we cannot pay. 
We have been taken ransom by the law, the devil, his minions, and no one can deliver us. We look around and we see nothingness. Shame undoes us. We think we are alone. We, we lash out in those places in blame, attempting to, to cover up. We, we try to fill our emptiness with all sorts of things. We think that we are our own, and it is up to us to take up our debts and our emptiness. And it is in this place of need, nothingness, shame, scandal that Christ Jesus steps in and becomes your kinsman redeemer. Like Elisha, he pays your debt by what? His life, his precious blood. He doesn't free us from our debtor's prison. He doesn't just free us from our debtor's prison. He gives us his goodness and his spirit, the oil in our jars. The invitation then, if you've received this, is to give your empty jar to the Lord to fill. For only he can redeem you. Only the oil of his spirit is enough to sustain you. You're just a branch attached to Christ, the life-giving vine. Rest in your nothingness, but also your branchiness and receive the life that you need, availing yourself to nothing, appealing to his everythingness. For he is our kinsman redeemer. He's bought us back. He will give us what we need to pay our debt and all that we need to live out the rest. And when we feel empty, he says, he will fill us. Psalm 116, how can I repay the Lord for his kindness he has given to me? I'll take the cup of salvation and I'll raise it and I'll ask him, fill it again, fill it again. He's given us all that we need to be freed from the grip of the devil and a life of emptiness where I feel like I need to fill myself. He's delivered us from all the shame and given us all we need to live, banking on, hoping on him to keep the jar filled. And this church is who we are, filled with his oil, jar upon jar of us. And the call then is to embody this active rest to allow the jar of God's mercy to be poured out. Paul says in Philippians 2.17 that his life is to be poured out as a drink offering for the faith of others. And he says, even if it's poured out this way, he's glad and rejoices. A drink offering is like taking a 40 ounce and offering it as a sacrifice to the Lord. Remember in the Bible, drinking wine is a sabbatical activity, a sign of rest and celebration. So when the drink offering is offered and poured out, it was all poured out. And when Paul says that he is, when Paul says this, he is saying that his life, all the struggles of it serve as a libation upon the sacrificial service of all the churches he ministers to. His labor is offered as a drink for God, as wine to make the Lord's heart glad. And he invites the Philippian church to do the same, to pour out their lives upon Jesus. And when you and I do this, church, when we've received the, from the Lord and we op- offer our cup and he fills it again and again, jar after jar after jar, we go out and we pour our lives out as a sacrifice, one after another, and we come back and the Lord promised he will fill it again and again for the oil of the Spirit is a never-ceasing fount. Now I want to finish with this. Danette and I have been in places where we had debts that could never be repaid. 
by us. When we went to try to buy our house, we couldn't buy it. And so we were in jeopardy of losing it. And so I asked my friend Ed. I availed myself to my friend in my need. It wasn't easy. I was ashamed. And in that place of need, my friend Ed met me and bought my house for us. And we are bound as brothers by that act of redemption. He feels it. I feel it. The love that is between us has done nothing but grow as a result of such a sacrificial act of love. Friends, it can happen. The church is to be this place where those kind of stories are told of our lives being redeemed by the blood of Jesus and then in turn us offering our lives as a drink offering poured out for another and the story is told, man, they paid a debt I could not owe. And I have been redeemed. Let's pray. God, help us. We are a people who feel every ounce of our failure and shame. And it keeps us so often from asking for, our, for a jar. It keeps us from noticing the oil. It keeps us from coming to you, who's the only one that has a fount filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. It's the only place where us sinners can be plunged beneath the flood, the torrent, the ever-rushing, overflowing torrent of your mercy and grace and be covered and be brought out, redeemed. So I pray no matter where we might be this morning that we would thrust ourselves into your fount with faith that it will always supply forgiveness, renewal, redemption. For you are our brother who redeemed us. And we have been adopted into your family because of your body and your blood. Help us to find rest there this morning, we pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.